you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus uh, chapter 16. If not, uh, it'll be up on uh, the screen for you. This is the passage I've thought uh, a lot about this week. And so because of that, I've thought a lot about complaining. I think we all probably have the propensity to uh, complain a lot, depending on what our circumstance is. Um, As many of you know, I have uh, four kids, and just like... uh, any other kids, they tend to complain on really long car rides. Uh, if you've ever been there before, you know the complaints. Are we there yet? Uh, I'm hungry. I'm bored. I have to go to the bathroom. My brother, my sister, they're sitting too close to me. Uh, you are familiar with a lot of those complaints. But if you ask my wife, Becca, she would tell you that the biggest complainer, the worst complainer in the family on the long car rides is not the kids but yours truly, Uh, because I can't stand them myself. Um, I saw a a program this week uh, about a a big family, um, and uh, the daughter eventually grew up to age 16, and she got her license, so she's decided to come home and and take the family for a long, long car ride. And so the parents decided to sit in the back seat while she drove and replay all the complaints that they'd heard over the years. And I just remember thinking, what sweet revenge that must feel like. I've got to remember that uh, in a couple of years. Uh, So it might not be car rides uh, for you, but I think we all have the propensity uh, for complaining given the right circumstances. Now, God's people, of course, didn't have cars, but they were on a long journey in the book of Exodus. And when our passage opens up, we know that they were on that long journey Uh, They had just left Egypt, which was the country of their enslavement. Uh, They were on their way to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, but in between, uh, God was leading them to Mount Sinai, a place in which uh, He was going to meet them in a very special way. And so one of the things that we discover is as they were traveling, they were certainly given to all sorts of complaining on the way. And that's what our passage tells us this morning. So I'm going to be reading from Exodus uh, chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Pharaoh, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? 
And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your presence with us. We pray now that as we look at your word, that you would speak powerfully uh, to our hearts. We need to hear your voice, Father. We hunger and thirst for what you have to say. So please visit us with your presence here this morning. Help us to understand your word. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to know you better, to know your gospel more. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. This morning is uh, really the last week or we're going to spend uh, in the book of Exodus in this really powerful story. We could spend a lot more time, uh, but it's the last week as we start the Lenten season actually next week, which is even hard to believe. Uh, but if you've been with us as we've looked at this Exodus story, you'll know that, that we have seen uh, the character of God on display, not just for God's people in that moment, but for us as we look at the Scriptures and we've seen that, that God is a God of judgment. Uh, we've seen that God is a God of special grace. We saw last week that God uses often the occasion of our helplessness uh, to be the context or the backdrop uh, for His great power and for His great grace. We've seen that God hears, uh, that God delivers, that God defends His people And finally, we see this morning that God provides. And I think that's the clearest thing that we see this morning in our passage. We really see two things. We see God's patience and we see God's provision. So the first thing I want to look at is really the patience of God that is on display in this passage. And we learn about it immediately in verse 2 where it says this, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Our passage is really uh, the middle passage uh, that is bookended by two other passages. And if you read the full section, the theme that comes out is the grumbling and complaining of God's people. Uh, In chapter 15, verses 22 to 27, uh, they are in the wilderness and they're thirsty. And they come upon some water, but the water is bitter. It's undrinkable. They can't drink it. And so God, through his power, through the instrument of Moses, transforms that water into sweet water 
so that they can then drink in the wilderness. If you keep reading, you get to to chapter 17 and verses 1 to 7 uh, in chapter 17 tell about another time when God's people were really thirsty, but at this point there was no water whatsoever. And so Moses, through the power of God, brings uh, water flowing from a rock so that God's people can drink. And so what you see is that the theme of this whole three-chapter narrative really is the grumbling and complaining of God's people and the miraculous provision of God that follows. But God's people were hungry. They were thirsty. They were feeling sorry for themselves. They really believed that their circumstances were conspiring to bring about their end. And so I think if you read the the whole larger section of this, three things become really clear about their complaining, and I think are probably also instructive for us if you yourself are ever given to this sort of grumbling and complaining. I think the first thing that we see is that their complaining led them to forget. But it isn't just a passing forgetfulness. What we see in them is a criminal and even sinful forgetfulness. And when you think about the timing of all this, it is pretty remarkable how forgetful God's people really were. Because this passage tells us that this was probably about one month, maybe a month and a half, after God's people had been delivered from the Red Sea. And so think about it. Just one month ago, this people walked through the Red Sea on dry land, an incredibly powerful and miraculous work of God. And after they'd passed through, they saw that very same sea come and collapse over the Egyptian army and their bodies were washed all over the shore of the sea. We also know that they had been physically led by a visible manifestation of God. The passages tell us that there was a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, you and I don't get to experience things like this. The theologians call these theophanies or, or physical, visible representations of God. We don't really get to see a whole lot, but they did. And what that means is that if they ever doubted whether God was with them, if they had ever doubted whether God was physically present with them, all they had to do was look up and see a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud. We also know that just months before that, they had witnessed the Nile River being turned to blood. They had witnessed swarms of locusts, of lice, of plagues of frog, uh, uh, the plagues of hail. They'd seen all of these things consume the land because of the sheer power and force of this God who was present and who was with them. But in this moment, but now, all of that in an instant, is forgotten because their stomachs were empty, because they were thirsty. Their complaining had led them to forget. But what we see also is that their complaining not only led them to forget, but it also led them to reimagine the past. I don't know if you caught this in verse 3, so let me read it again. And the people of Israel said to them, Moses and Aaron, 
Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, we don't know the exact details of their slave conditions when they were back in Egypt. But I'm pretty sure they didn't sit by meat pots all day and eat bread to the fill. What we learn is that for 400 years, these people were enslaved by the Egyptians. They were worked to the bone. At points, they were victims of Pharaoh's attempt at population control. And yet now, in some weird way, they looked back on that as the good old days. Those were the good old days when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to our fill. Now, we we laugh at that. We, 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 We think, we criticize that. But don't we at times do the same thing naturally? Perhaps this is what nostalgia does to us. I tend to remember all the the great and wonderful things about former jobs and former life situations, what I tend to do is forget about the challenges and the troubles and the difficulties of those situations. We tend to think nostalgically about the past. And probably no better example is the way I've thought about different stages in parenting. Uh, This past year, my wife and I, for the first time in probably 10 or 12 years, have not had to change any diapers, right? And I can remember when we had to change diapers, all we could think about is how, we, 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 how great it's going to be when we don't have to change diapers anymore. And now that we don't have to change diapers anymore, we look back on the diaper stage and say, man, that was so easy, <laughs> right? Now, why do we do that? We do it because the circumstances we face now in parenting life feel more challenging than those circumstances back then. And so that's what life does to us. We do these sorts of things all the time. But for the nation of Israel, I think they had taken it one step further. I think they had raised this uh, to, in some ways, a very criminal and even sinful level. Uh, Pete Enns, a commentator, says that they had used their own perception of their circumstances as the standard by which to base reality. And so their, their complaining led them to forget. Uh, their complaining led them to, to really reimagine the past or rethink the past. But I think the last thing you see about their complaining is this, that ultimately their complaining was not against Moses and Aaron. Ultimately, their complaining was against God. And it says that much in verse 8. And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You see, the people come to Moses and Aaron, and, and they become the object of their frustration. They, they hurl all of their, their complaints and their troubles and their whining in the direction of Moses and Aaron. But what is Moses doing here? He's reminding them that really their complaining is not against them, but it's against God. And behind those complaints was this fact, that they were doubting the goodness and the care of God in their lives. 
Friends, isn't all this what we do often when we complain as well? We complain because we forget. We forget the history of God's goodness and care, the things that we've received from His gracious hand. We sometimes even reimagine that life would have been better if God had never intervened into our lives, that He'd never sent His disruption into our lives. Sometimes we even lust after a life without God, somehow thinking that it would be easier and more pleasurable. And what we also realize is that often when we are complaining about the circumstances of our lives, aren't we really complaining against God? Isn't it His power and control that is behind every presenting issue that we face in our lives? Think about it this way. Uh, imagine that you can't stand your, your spouse or your coworker or your life situation or maybe even one of your kids at this moment in your life. You start thinking that, that maybe your life would be better without that spouse or without that child or without that coworker or that boss, and, and you get frustrated. You start complaining. And those things are probably just the presenting issue, aren't they? Because your deeper frustration might actually be with God, who stands behind each and every one of those presenting issues. You maybe secretly doubt whether He really has your best interest in mind. Isn't that exactly what Israel's doing in this passage? Isn't behind all the complaining and the whining and the grumbling a doubt, a doubt about God's goodness in their lives. They're thinking, He's just led us into the desert in order to kill us. Our lives are just some cruel joke that has been orchestrated by God. That is exactly what they are thinking in this moment. Now, I want to be uh, careful here because I think that there is a faithful and healthy complaining that we see in the Scriptures. I think all you have to do is turn to the book of Psalms And you'll find a lot of really faith-filled and healthy complaining before God. But I actually don't think that's what you're seeing in this passage. And I think as as I look at my own life, that's often what I don't see in my own heart as well. My complaining is more often like the complaining of the nation of Israel than the healthy, faith-filled complaining I see in other parts of the Scriptures. And it reminds me that we all are a lot like God's people, which has to make each and every one of us infinitely thankful for this, that God is patient with us. He is patient. He is long-suffering. And that is exactly what I see on display in this passage Because this is the height of criminal, spiritually criminal and sinful complaining, and yet God doesn't blast them out of the water, which is certainly what I would have wanted to do, certainly what I sometimes do to my kids in those long car rides. That isn't what you see God doing here. He doesn't blast them out of the water. Instead, He meets them with grace because He is patient and He is long-suffering. Now, later on in their spiritual journey, he will address their complaining and grumbling. But for now, he recognizes that they are infants in their spiritual 
maturity and their experience with God. As they mature, he will come back to this issue of complaining that he observes in them. But for now, he treats them with overwhelming patience and long-suffering. And this fact is remarkable in and of itself. Just in and of itself, the fact that they were complaining so severely and God met them with patience and long-suffering is remarkably gracious in and of itself. But what we see here is that God's grace extends even further towards them. Because He doesn't just tolerate their complaining. He hears the need that is behind the complaining. You see, His patience extends to his provision. And that's the other thing that we see here. We see the provision of God on display. Verse 13 says this, in the evening quail came upon and covered the camp. And in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. You see, the nation of Israel misremembered all of these meat pots and, and bread to the full in Egypt. And yet, what does God do? He gives them in abundance that thing that they most desired in their complaining. He sends quail that literally covers the camp, a sign of the abundant provision of God. The, the, the what is it that is mentioned here in the passage is manna. It's bread from heaven that covers all over the ground. Now, we don't know the gluten content of this bread, uh, but we learn later on that it was sweet. It was, it was delicious to eat because it was bread from heaven. And so each one of these provisions is given in abundance through the direct and immediate provision of God for his people. The people, they didn't have to work for it. All they had to do was wake up and it was there for them, a symbol of God's grace and provision. All of this, all of this was gracious. They certainly didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it by their conduct. They didn't even need to do anything for it. All of it was simply a gracious gift from a loving, patient, and long-suffering Father. One commentator said this, If anyone needs convincing of the God of grace in the Old Testament, they need only look here in this passage. And yet, as we look at the greater story of the Scriptures and the history of redemption, we see that this isn't the only instance of God's grace and His patience and His long-suffering. But we see in the story of redemption that the greatest instance of all of these things, God's grace, His patience, His long-suffering character, all of this, the greatest instance of it is demonstrated for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because, friends, the truth is, you and I, we are just like these people. We whine and we complain. We harbor secret doubts and and we experience criminal forgetfulness. 
We doubt whether God intends good for us in our lives. We rebel against Him and His perfect will. And yet in the midst of all of that, we are given Jesus, who John chapter 6 says is the bread of life. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. And the Scriptures tell us we do nothing for it. All of it is a gracious gift from God to a people who hunger and thirst spiritually. And so what does the gospel call us to do? It calls us to place our faith in Jesus Christ, that bread of life. And when we do, we receive just as abundantly his gift of grace to us. But I think what this, also, this passage also tells us, lastly, is it describes for us what a relationship with God is really like. It shows us that it is a life of dependence. And so what it reminds us is that our response to a gracious God, our response to a patient and long-suffering God really ought to be childlike dependence upon our good Father. A couple years ago, uh, probably 11 years ago, I was thinking about this this morning, I was asked uh, to uh, come speak to several hundred high school students. And uh, I was asked to speak on the topic of childlike dependence, on the fact that when we're in a relationship with God, like we observe the people of Israel here, we are called to a relationship of childlike dependence upon God. So I thought to myself, how can I how can, I, how can I communicate this to my audience? So what I decided to do is, is, I, is I took with me my, my son at that point. He was only probably eight or nine months old at that point. So as I gave the talk to these high school students, I was holding my eight-month-old son the whole time. They probably didn't remember at all uh, uh, what I said. Uh, but they remembered, you're that speaker that had the kid, right? Uh, I forever became known that. But what, as I held my child, I said, this child, uh, my son, depends on me and his mother for everything. He depends on his mother for, and I for food, for shelter, for clothing, for every basic need. And what I said to them is the truth is that the Christian life is all about this. It's all about childlike dependence. And so that's what I say to you as well as we look at this passage, as we contemplate what a life in a relationship with God looks like. It is a life of childlike dependence. It is recognizing each day how much we need our Savior for our next breath, for our next provision, and ultimately for our deep need for grace. You see, later on as Moses is about to die and he's giving his final words to this people, as they're about to enter into the promised land and Moses is about to fade off into the distance, he says this to his people. He says, There in the desert you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries a son all the way till you reached this place. And so, friends, as we look at the Scriptures, we behold a God who is patient and long-suffering We behold a God of grace who stands ready and willing to supply everything that you need. And so, rest in Him. Live a life 
of absolute dependence upon your Father. As I thought about this sermon all week, a lyric came into mind of a song that we sing all the time called, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. There's a great line in there that I thought about that says this, And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? Right? Isn't that what we see in the passage and what we see in our own hearts? But the lyric that rang most true to me was this, Thy mercy seat is open still, here let my soul retreat. With humble hope, attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Let's pray.